0: Hello and welcome to Critical Observations in Pulmonary Medicine led by Chief Medical Officer of the American Lung Association, Dr. Albert Rizzo. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions or Consultant 360.
1: This podcast is another in the series Critical Observations in Pulmonary Medicine. Today's topic is not about a specific disease entity, but importantly about issues surrounding the most preventable cause of lung disease, tobacco. We're going to hear about important aspects about advocating for tobacco control that the practicing physician should be aware of and understanding issues related to their patients. To take a deeper dive into the area of tobacco control in this country, we have two guests with us with unique perspectives and experience. We have Thomas Carr from the American Lung Association, and Dr. Scott Siegel from Christiana Care in Newark, Delaware. Thank you both for joining me today.
2: Thank you for having me. Thanks for having me.
1: The American Lung Association's annual State of Tobacco Control reports and evaluates states and the federal government on actions taken to eliminate the nation's leading cause of preventable death, tobacco use, and save lives with proven effective and urgently needed tobacco control laws and policies. Lung Association proudly marked the 20th anniversary of releasing its data tobacco control report back in early 2022, and a new report will be coming out in 2023. That last report reflected on the progress made over the past 20 years, and it's looking ahead to the significant amount of work that remains to be done to end tobacco-caused death and disease in this country. I'd like to start with Thomas Carr. Thomas has been the Director of National Policy at the American Lung Association since October 2010 and held the title of Manager, National Policy, and Policy Analyst with the Lung Association prior to that. In this role, he directs state and local tobacco control advocacy efforts for the Lung Association and is the primary author and editor of the Lung Association's annual State of Tobacco Control Report. He also oversees the American Lung Association state legislated actions on Tobacco Issues Project, which is an online database and website for state tobacco control laws. Mr. Carr is one of the country's most knowledgeable experts on state tobacco control laws and policies. First, I'd like to address the new generation of tobacco products, including e-cigarettes, and the threat they have made over the last several years as more and more individuals, now up to 2.5 million middle and high school students, have reported using e-cigarettes in 2022. In response to the youth vaping epidemic, new public policies, including ending the sale of all flavored tobacco products, have risen in importance as well. Could you give us an overview of what the state of tobacco control in 2022 showed us and what has happened since then? I'd like you to touch on these three specific areas. One is the FDA opportunities that were achieved or missed in 2021 and 2022 to help reduce tobacco use, and also what efforts were prominent at the state level, and then again, the ongoing concern of health inequities and disparities related to tobacco use in our society.
0: Great, thanks again, Dr. Rizzo, for having me on the podcast. Stevens Tobacco Control 2022 was an especially fun report to do because of the, the 20th anniversary of the report. We were able to look back over the past 20 years to document some of the tobacco control successes and missed opportunities over that time period. Under a law passed in 2009 called the Tobacco Control Act, the US Food and Drug Administration gained comprehensive authority over the manufacturing, marketing and sale of tobacco products. The Lung Association strongly supported passage of this law and had high hopes for strong policies and regulations to prevent and reduce tobacco use we hoped would follow. However, I think it is fair to characterize FDA authority over tobacco products as a mostly missed opportunity. It was certainly not entirely FDA's fault as the tobacco industry will strongly oppose and sue FDA over any regulation that'll meaningfully reduce tobacco use. And they need the support of the presidential administration in office to proceed. But there have also been a number of unforced errors. Uh, One specific example of a missed opportunity has been FDA not moving forward to end the sale of menthol cigarettes and other flavored tobacco products, which play a major role in youth initiation of these products, and in the case of menthol cigarettes in particular, make it harder for smokers to quit. There were reports produced by FDA's Tobacco Products Scientific Advisory Committee in 2011 and FDA itself in 2013 that found removing menthol cigarettes from the marketplace would benefit public health. There's been progress on this issue recently with FDA pledging in 2021, and then proposing rules in 2022 to end the sale of menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars. But the delay in acting caused additional and needless death and disease to occur, especially among Black Americans, given that over 80% of Black persons who smoke use menthol cigarettes. Turning to the state level, in its State of Tobacco Control report, Long Association grades states in five areas, state funding for tobacco prevention and cessation programs, state smoke-free laws in public places and workplaces, state tobacco taxes, access to tobacco cessation treatments and services, and state flavored tobacco product laws. There has been some change in the policies graded during the 20 years of the report. All of the first three policies I mentioned um, have been graded over over the entire 20 years. Overall, what we found in the 2022 report is that we saw more forward progress over the decade from two, 2000 to 2010 than from 2011 to 2022. Uh, one notable example of this was smoke-free laws, where the number of states with comprehensive laws prohibiting smoking in public places and workplaces, including restaurants and bars, rose from two states in 2002 to 28 states by 2012, but no state has passed a law since then. Medicaid coverage of tobacco cessation treatments and services is an area we did see continuous improvement in, both from improved state coverage under the traditional Medicaid program and more people being covered in many states due to the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. This is good news because Medicaid enrollees smoke at significantly higher rates than people that have private health insurance. And we have to make sure people have helped to end their addiction. This is a good segue to some of the ongoing disparities in tobacco use that continue to be present in the U.S. that contribute to health inequities in this country. On the positive side, adult cigarette smoking and tobacco use data from 2020, released in March 2022, saw the lowest cigarette smoking rate among adults ever recorded. Only 12.5% of adults smoked in 2020, a significant decline from 14% in 2019. Overall adult tobacco use and adult e-cigarette use also registered declines from 2019 to 2020. However, these overall rates mask significant disparities in tobacco use among races and ethnicities and due to socioeconomic factors. Uh, smoking remains alarmingly high among Native Americans and Alaska Natives at 27.1% and lesbian, gay, and bisexual adults at 16.1%. Smoking has also been found to be higher if a person's income or education is lower and if they are enrolled in Medicaid or uninsured. Populations disproportionately exposed to secondhand smoke include children ages 3 to 11, black Americans, persons living in poverty, and people with a high high school education or less. In addition to the extremely high rates of menthol cigarette use among black Americans who smoke, menthol cigarettes are used at elevated levels among LGBTQ Americans women and Hispanic Americans who smoke. The tobacco control community must address these disparities. The good news is both the policies addressed in the Lung Association's State of Tobacco Control Report and policies like your next guest will address can make a difference. But we need policymakers at all levels of government to pass, fund and implement them to see progress.
1: So it sounds like there's certainly a comprehensive approach from the Lung Association at both certainly federal and state levels and certainly there's a lot of work still to be done. And, and you're right. I think there's a good segue now to, uh, to talk a little bit more about local action. Um, communities are beginning to address tobacco-related health inequities as a social justice issue. And local data on equities at the point of sale can be valuable in garnering support for policies to change the retail environment. Dr. Scott Siegel is a licensed psychologist and director of population health research within the Institute for Research on Equity and Community Health, or abbreviated IREACH at Christiana Care in Newark, Delaware. In his immediate prior role, Dr. Siegel served as the director of psychosocial oncology and cancer survivorship at the F. Graham Cancer Center and Research Institute, where he provided counseling services to people affected by cancer and led a team of psychologists, social workers, nurses, and research staff. He's here today to discuss his research that unearthed new insights about the impact of smoking on Delaware's communities in particular, and in particular those of color, and discuss some potential new solutions to this disparity issue. This work, which is the first study of its kind performed by Dr. Siegel and colleagues at Christiana Care's iReach, was published in the peer-reviewed journal Cities and Health and involved the use of geospatial analysis. Dr. Siegel, thank you for joining us today. Please tell us about how you came to have your interest in population health research and your recent research findings.
2: Uh, Thank you again for having me. And and thank you also to Thomas for really setting the table quite well in terms of the work that needs to be done. Um, My interest was really born out of the work I did working directly with people affected by cancer. As I think many know, lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer mortality by a lot. And by far the leading risk factor for lung cancer is uh, tobacco use. But it was working up close with people who were living with cancer, dying from cancer, their families who were left behind after that really motivated me to wanna think about what could we do differently? I think like many, I used to think that we as a country had solved the tobacco problem. We've seen dramatic decreases in the rates of smoking. We're about half of the male adult population in the 1950s was smoking. And as we just heard, You know, now it's about 12% of the adult population but that overall statistic really doesn't tell the whole story there are in terms of reducing the overall rates there's more to do to think about how do we reach all groups and uh we really do need to take additional action because the trajectory we're on we won't actually solve that with the existing policies so one of the questions that i really became quite interested in is what are the mechanisms by which some of these subgroups continue to smoke at rates that we see maybe 20, 30 years ago for, the, for other majority groups. And what we realized is that because of residential segregation in this country by socioeconomic status and by race and ethnicity, that in areas that are higher poverty and predominantly minority, we see a completely different landscape with respect to the retail environment, much higher rates of retailers licensed to sell tobacco products. And this is even after adjusting for population density. And it's within these communities where the tobacco retailers are not just selling the tobacco products, but they're the primary way that the tobacco industry is marketing. We made it illegal to market by TV and billboards and near schools and at sporting events, but we didn't make it, we didn't regulate the marketing at the point of sale and on the window front of stores. And this is really where the tobacco industry reallocated their marketing funds And then they are able to reduce pricing within these low-income communities to offset the tax increases that have also proven to be so effective at reducing smoking rates. So between the shifting in marketing, the reducing prices, and then just the social norms that it creates and perpetuates in these communities, that smoking is a normal thing to do, all of that goes a long way towards uh, creating new customers among youth and maintaining existing customers among adults even and maybe even especially among adults who very much would like to stop using tobacco. But when you're constantly bombarded by the cues to smoke and the the marketing and just the social norms, it becomes very, very difficult to discontinue. So that was really the, the basis for why we started to look at this. We're certainly not the first to recognize the link between the retail environment and smoking rates among disadvantaged groups. But what we realized is that some of the initial attempts through policy to regulate this have not necessarily had the outcomes we're looking for. And so we sought to understand what was it about those policies that maybe could be improved upon. And what our research did in Delaware, just like we've seen in other parts of the country, we first established that there were higher rates of tobacco retailers, a higher density in, in these disadvantaged communities, communities of lower income and predominantly minority groups. But we went further when we looked by zoning type. What we saw is that there's a very high rate of tobacco retailers in residentially zoned areas of these communities, meaning that these stores are within walking distance of where someone lives. These are the stores that they pass on their way to work or the stores that kids pass on their way to school. It's the same stores that they go to on the corner to buy their bread for the week. It's unavoidable. When you look into other communities, not only are there lower rates of tobacco retailers, but they're also segregated into commercially zoned areas. You don't see them nearly at the rate as in residential areas. So unless you're seeking out cigarettes in more advantaged areas, it's easy to go through life without even thinking about it, let alone being prompted to take up smoking or to continue smoking. So the main insight we gained from our work locally was you have to think about the neighborhoods where people live. And prior research has shown that even living within a block or two of smoking decreases by half the likelihood that someone will discontinue smoking in the next year. So just that proximity alone is is very important and points to some potential policy implications.
1: I think there's no question that you know the marketing at the local level is probably underappreciated, but I think you point out the fact that that's a big loophole that the tobacco industry has utilized. And the proximity issue, I guess that also has to do with Thomas can tell us are there, there are laws about tobacco uh, sales near schools or not?
0: Certainly not in most states. There, there in a few places, there may be community level laws, but certainly not the state level in most cases no. Okay.
1: So I wanted to I mean, you you really set the stage for what's going on, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the hurdles and and things that we can maybe do to start making progress. i I know uh, you alluded to a little bit of lack of momentum, Thomas, as far as state laws being enacted uh, recently. So maybe if you could talk maybe at the national and state level about some hurdles that remain, and then we'll ask Scott to talk more about the municipality hurdles that we may face. I would
0: say, in mean, large part, it's a, it's a, there's, it's really a political problem. We, uh, we certainly have a set of policies that we have been proven to reduce tobacco use that we can draw from, and and promising practices like like Dr. Siegel is talking about as well that we can employ. I think it's a, in large in large part a um, how do we get our political leaders and certainly in, and then in all state in all parts of the country as well too um, to do this, and especially in some of the southern Appalachian and other states, we've we've seen a real lack of these tobacco control policies being implemented, and I, I think that leads and that, that you, you see it in the data. Uh, smoking rate data is, is being higher.
1: Scott, anything at the municipality level you foresee as a hurdle we can try to address?
2: Yeah, there's a few barriers I think we really wanna focus on. One is because like I mentioned earlier, just the way things are segregated, this is out of sight, out of mind for a lot of people. They don't realize the stark difference in the exposure to, to marketing and just access tobacco that, that varies quite a bit from community to community. So I think from a policy maker standpoint, some general awareness is important and connecting the dots on what this does to the overall health, the constituents, as well as healthcare costs at a state level, whether through Medicaid or state employees. Of course, there's competing interests. So the tobacco industry itself, as well as business owners of the stores that are selling these tobacco products, are not necessarily in favor of, of any additional regulation or new policy. And will often point to the, you know, the economic benefits of leaving things status quo and you know local politicians are very sensitive to these messages and unless there is you know an organization or some effort to organize the community to offer a different perspective most political leaders are going to be responsive to you know local business owners as well as messages from industry who are very very good at working with state legislatures and and other policymakers in terms of advancing their message so I agree with Thomas completely that largely this is political. There are some economic issues we wanna think about. It harkens back to the days of where we were helping farmers who who uh, grew tobacco to move to different crops so that they could still pay their bills. And that may require some proactive thinking on our part, some investments helping local economies. But you know there is also a lot of uh, resources available if we wanted to think about that. We collect a lot of excise taxes on tobacco, There continues to be funds from the master settlement you know and typically in most states it's just a small fraction of those dollars that actually get back into tobacco control so there are resources if we wanted to think progressively about how we could help transition the economies of these local communities but it's going to take effective messaging and working with political leaders for sure
0: if i could one other thing i'll add on the local level And this kind of is a state and local combination is laws that preempt preempt or prevent local communities from being able to pass stronger policies in the state level. And we've been seeing an uptick in the uh, tobacco industry pushing for these laws, um, especially as states states and communities get into uh, flavored tobacco product laws in particular. So that is, uh, and it's unfortunate because what it does is it also uh, precludes uh, policies like Dr. Siegel's talking about and things like that too, or in some cases it does.
1: You know, having you know practiced the Christiana care for many years and still doing so, I know uh, Delaware was fairly aggressive early on with regard to clean indoor air laws. I think we passed one of the earliest, strongest indoor air laws back when I think Dr. Governor Minner was was governor, and fought a lot to make sure the casinos were smoke free. and And it is just a lot of work ahead of us. And I guess the message is changing this requires uh, action on the part of the the public the voting public, to put people into place who will look at these issues. And and you're right, uh, Scott, there's competing interests. Certainly business is going to push back with regard to restriction of some retail locations and retail business. But again, we always have to put the health of the community on a balance between what uh, business can can or cannot support. So I don't know what your sense of, is Delaware continuing to be fairly progressive as far as trying to control tobacco? I know you're not politicians, we're not politician. we don't want to support one or the other, but what do you foresee, anything uh, in the leg- legislature this coming year or two? Uh,
2: well, you know, the encouraging news is, like you said, Delaware has traditionally been progressive and has taken multiple steps over the years. There was also, not that long ago, another tax increase, but it. In light of what's been going on in public health in the last few years with COVID and, and other related issues, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of focus on opioid overdoses and, and death you know th- that I think the spotlight has come off of tobacco. Mm-hmm. And it, again, it can feel like an issue that we dealt with before. It's not a priority. But we also know that, you know, tobacco use is certainly related to COVID outcomes, and the same can be said about opioids where people who currently smoke have a much harder time getting off of opioids or or getting into treatment because of the smoking. So I think that you know the tobacco control world has to continue to adapt. The tobacco industry is very good at adapting, so just even the preemption strategy is one that they learned the hard way but now they're using effectively, so we need to respond to that as well. And also from a public health standpoint, we have to realize that there's lots of different competing priorities and if we ever get into the position of trying to compete against other issues we come out disadvantaged but where we can show that by working together for example you know addressing tobacco use to improve both opioid overdose deaths and also issues like covid you know then it's not a matter of divide and conquer but it's really how do we join together and allocate resources in ways that really benefit the ultimately the public as you said which we have to put first so it can't be a pet cause approach and it really has to be one that evolves over time and where we work we look for opportunities to work across sectors
1: so thomas when is the next uh, tobacco control report due to come out from the american lung association
0: Next state of tobacco control report will be coming out on Wednesday, January 25th at 12 a.m. Eastern time. So pretty soon. So we look forward to kind of sharing the results we've seen over the past year. And I will note um, in, in regards to Delaware, there has been a, a bit of an increase in their funding for tobacco control programs in this past year. So that's kind of a preview, um, we, something we already knew because they're kind of in their fiscal year already. But um, so that was good news. But uh, obviously, how that how that funding is applied is important.
1: So that uh, comprehensive report, I guess Lung.org would be the best place to uh, get information on past and upcoming tobacco control issues and state of tobacco control.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, lung.org slash SOTC is the uh, kind of the, the vanity link um, to state of tobacco control. Um, and you'd see 2022 up there. the 2022 report up there right now. But um, right. once twenty twenty three comes out, it'll be updated
1: automatically. Right. And, and Scott, where can people learn more about your work at uh, Christiana Care?
2: Well, they can certainly visit our website, the iReach website at Care. Our the paper that you cited earlier is open access. That's certainly something we can provide information on people can can readily access. I also just, if, if I could kind of bring this back into the clinician's room for a moment for the physician or the other type of clinician who, who may be working with a patient to know that there are... You know, a number of resources available. There's national state quit lines. But some of the work that we're discussing here in terms of thinking about the local environment that people live in and what that does at a population level, there's also implications when you're counseling a patient about smoking cessation. And namely, a lot of times we take a patient who continues to smoke us evidence that they don't care, that they're not motivated, but we're not fully appreciating necessarily all the challenges that they have, including the fact that maybe they live with people who smoke or that they've tried, but they just haven't succeeded. So it's more a question of self-efficacy than it is a question of motivation. And so taking into account the social determinants of health, the retail environment, the full picture helps us to better understand all the challenges that people are up against and making sure that we're really doing everything on our end, that we we can to understand that and then maximize their chances of success if they do choose to, to make a quit attempt
1: yeah no question the uh, the smoking addiction is uh, is real most majority of smokers when surveyed want to quit and on average 9 10 11 times is what's needed to have somebody successfully quit and a lot of it is based on as you said it's the support that they get from their families their physicians and and also it's their ability to maybe zone out from the, uh, the marketing cues that uh, are all around them in some of these neighborhoods. So it, it's, uh, it's an ongoing issue that certainly the Lung Association looks at smoking cessation just as important as uh, tobacco control. I mean, they're both part of the same way to improve public health.
2: Right.
1: So, so there's a lot of work to be done. And I think the important thing is that we keep educating individuals, educate uh, the public about what laws may need to be changed locally, locally as well as state and federally. So I want to thank you both for the time you took today and encourage our listeners to get more information at the sites that were mentioned and hopefully tune in for our next podcast next month. So thank you both again.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: For more pulmonary and critical care content, visit our website, consultant360.com.